Miss the show? No worries. It's on Point Non, the podcast. The Bank of Canada quietly announcing it's going to have to raise interest rates because of rising inflation and supply issues. The Prime Minister was asked about this during the election. How would he deal with inflation? And remember, he told us he doesn't focus on monetary issues, except even a small interest rate will crush millions of Canadians living paycheck to paycheck. Could businesses be shut down if they break vaccine mandate rules? There's a Kingston sports bar that's having its liquor license yanked because they let the public know they'd be breaking the rules. What are the rules? Justin Trudeau fails to tell the truth and decides to atone over a cold beer and some fun at the beach. Has he wrecked reconciliation? Oh, we'll talk about that. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. All right, great to have you here as we get closer to the weekend. You know, this didn't get a lot of attention, but there was a headline Thursday that absolutely should raise eyebrows because when it happens, it's going to affect an awful lot of people. The Bank of Canada announced it's going to have to start raising interest rates in the first half of 2022 because of supply issues and rising inflation. Again, this is not an issue discussed during the election. It certainly should have been. Because the Prime Minister was asked directly how he plans to deal with rising inflation, and he said, well, we should forgive him because he doesn't focus on monetary issues. He worries about families. Well, maybe Mr. Trudeau should realize that if interest rates go up, it'll affect millions of people who are living paycheck to paycheck and who, in many cases, have overpaid for things like houses because houses keep getting more expensive. And for those people, any hike to interest could break the bank. Ian Lee is a professor over at the Sprott School of Business. He joins us now. Good to have you. Uh, Good afternoon, Alex. So, of course, this didn't come out until after the election. um, But we had been led to believe, I think most people believe, that interest rates would stay put for a while. Uh, But the Bank of Canada says, uh, I don't think we can wait much longer. Yeah, um, I've been predicting this. Um, and I'm not the only one, by the way, I'm not trying to mm-hmm. tell you I'm clairvoyant or something, or I've got a magical crystal ball. One only has to look at the, uh, the, the, the supply chain interruptions and the inflation that's going on across the economy. Um, uh, Dalhousie released, uh, University released its annual food inflation analysis, which is a very sophisticated mm-hmm. document. And they're predicting a 5% inflation in food this year. We're seeing energy prices going up, of course. And I think that the, the the Bank of Canada is going to have to move sooner rather than later. The consensus was, well, maybe at the end of 2022, a year from now. And I thought that that was um, uh, you know, just unrealistic, um, that I thought that they're going to have to move before that. And I, I'm not going to be shocked, Alex, if we see a rate increase in uh, early, the first quarter, the first three months, the winter months, of uh, 2022. And this is going to affect everybody because every business that I've ever known has a, a line of credit to support its mm-hmm. business at the bank. I'm a former banker. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, nonprofits have them. And of course, mm-hmm. individuals have lines of credit or on their HELOC loans on their house, or they got car loans, which come up for renewal or mortgages and so forth. So my point is, is if this, uh, and on top of the food price increases, on top of the energy price increases, yeah, yeah. we're seeing natural yeah, gas yeah, going yeah. through the roof because of China and Europe. 
if interest rates go up, then I think that Mr. Trudeau is going to be facing a very serious backlash across the country because these issues, these these areas, food and energy, they're I call them existential. It's not like, oh, well, I won't take a holiday this year. You can't say right. I'm not going to eat this year because I'm prices have gone up. So he could be sitting there facing a, a very serious backlash sometime in uh, 2022 because of these price increases, inflationary increases. Yeah. Well, right now he doesn't give a care in the world because he's enjoying himself in Tofino, which uh, very few people can afford in this country to do. Um, but, you know, there are an awful lot of businesses um, that had to take out massive personal loans um, to hold on to their businesses during this pandemic. And something you said kind of struck me is, you know, people people are really over leveraged right now. And a lot of those people are small business owners. And so they they will feel this, I think, harder than anybody. I I completely agree, because small business always uh, feels that they have less resources. That's why they're small. I mean, big businesses are big because they've got a lot of people, they've got a lot of capital and a lot of, you know, reserves in their bank and so forth. Small businesses. And I lent, uh, I was in banking for nine years before I became a professor. And uh, I learned this up close and personal. Small businesses, even in the best of times, are, you know, uh, it's, it's a tough struggle. That's why you see so much such high failure rates among small businesses compared to big businesses. But now in this situation where they a lot of small businesses, I mean, they were devastated by the pandemic. And yes, they got some support from government, but a lot of them had to remortgage their own houses and put their houses up as collateral. And and so I think that uh, that we this could be the uh, the, the trigger, if you will, if, if rates go up in the first quarter, which I think they will then this could be the trigger to uh, employees demanding wage increases, employers saying yes, and then we could get into one of those inflationary spirals that I lived through in the 1970s when we experienced stagflation under another guy called Trudeau, but it was Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Yeah. You know, there are a number of issues and and kind of maybe straighten me out where I'm not seeing this right. So we've got supply chain issues where people are having a hard time buying cars right now because the their microchips can't get here. There are supply chain issues where restaurants aren't able to get certain foods. And so we've got all those complications and they are said to, you know, they're going to get worse. And then we've got a labor shortage in this country. Um, and then you've got high unemployment. Yes. And so, like, when all those things swirl together and they aren't dealt with, what happens? Like, have we ever seen this kind of scenario in the past that's kind of similar to where we are? Is that a Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, decade? Or, or is this new? Similar. You're absolutely right. Similar, but not identical. Um, I lived through the 70s. That's when I was working in banking, by the way. Yep. And inflation yep. was started out at 4%, then it went to crept up mm-hmm. to five, then it went to six, then it went to seven, then it went to eight. It just kept on going 19. up. And, but, yeah. but to your point, but to, yeah, to your point um, the one big difference between then and now was we didn't have the labor shortages. We had the boomers. I am a boomer. I had a millions of me. <laughs> there were millions mm-hmm. of us. And, mm-hmm. and there was just a huge surplus of, of workers. And so the unemployment was high, uh, but there wasn't a shortage of workers. What makes, uh, Alex, why I'm, I think this is a more dangerous situation is, is that um, compared to the 70s is because we have these shortages which were um, uh, caused by the, the, the graying of the population, the decline of uh, fertility, the birth rate, and the, the aging of the population. Then along came the pandemic, which exacerbated 
those shortages because people stayed home. And then the third of the triple whammy was Mr. Trudeau's government, and I've said this many times before, and I'm very strong on this point, was that he undermined, sabotaged is the word I use if I really want to put it strongly, the, the consensus in our country that existed for 70, 80 years around unemployment insurance, which is we will give you a percentage of your income if you lose your job. Number two, you got to be looking for a job. And number three, you can't turn down a job if it's in your, in your wheelhouse, in your area of expertise. And then he threw all of those out the window and said, regardless, we're going to pay you $2,000, even if you're only making $200 a month, you can turn right. down a job and you don't have to be looking. This was a triple whammy on top of the aging causing shortages, on top of the pandemic causing shortages. This encouraged people, and I'm not accusing anybody of being lazy. If the rules change and you can stay home and don't have to work, well, you're not doing anything inappropriate or bad if they've changed the rules to permit it and allow it. But what he did was, uh, and I'm not trying to suggest he did it deliberately. I don't think he was thinking. He was just thinking of getting reelected. But it created it, it created an even bigger problem with with uh, with the shortages. And of course, shortages we've known since the time of the ancient Romans. If you have a shortage of anything, I don't care if it's called yeah. salt yeah. or gasoline or apartments. When you have a shortage people bid the prices up. So what we're getting now, we don't have the growth that we had in the 70s because we had all these sure, young people sure. called boomers. We are so <laughs> the economy is slowing down because of aging of the population. And we've got supply chain interruptions exacerbated by the, the undermining of the principles of the Unemployment Insurance Act. And so we are in a much worse situation to respond to this situation. And then on top of all that, sorry, Alex, with all <laughs> this bad gloom and doom, on top of all that, we have Europe the European Union yeah. going hell bent for leather into the future of shutting down fossil fuels, creating shortages over there that are feeding back into North America because liquefied natural gas can be shipped over there and they're bidding it up, as is China. And then, of mm -hmm. course, we have the trade war between the US and China, which is going to further create problems in the supply chains. So we have a lot of negative things pressing down on us and no compensating mm -hmm. good good uh, uh, events that are occurring, such as yeah. an explosion in the, the birth rate or something like that. Yeah, and today we also learned that the GDP has slowed even more. Um, you know, so, so with your banking info, what would you be telling people to do right now? Because I said to my husband, have you called our ban our mortgage expert and, and, and have you got the I's and T's dotted? So we're, we're good, but a lot of people this is the window they should be, you know, getting the affairs in order, Alex, correct? Alex, you're absolutely right. And this is the advice I gave to people back then. And I mean, I've stayed in touch with my friends in banks. I don't consult to them, but I have a lot of friends there. And of course, I study it and I teach it. Uh, and so to anyone out there in, in your audience that is listening, um, if you have a, flex, a, a variable rate, flexible rate mm -hmm. mortgage, I would lock in that sucker so fast, it wouldn't yeah, be funny. Yeah. Um, you should yeah. be going for the longest term. If you get a five-year lock-in, go for it. And if you say, but the five-year lock-in is a higher rate than my variable. Yes, it is. I understand that. It always has been higher than the variable. But if you think the variable, uh, the, the overall rates are going to increase, and I'm one of them, then you mm -hmm. don't want to wake up in, uh, in a year or two and see yeah. the rates going much higher because- the government is setting, uh, reacting to inflation. So lock right. in your mortgage if you can, if you're able to, for five years. That's the first advice I would give. 
Yeah, I mean, we actually broke our mortgage, took the hit to get a better more uh, interest rate because in the long run, we actually will save yep. a lot more money. So it's worth talking to your mortgage experts yes. and getting the advice because yes. uh, lock in now before it goes up and it's too late. All right, Ian, thank you for your insight. Always appreciate it and have a great weekend. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, and thank you very much. And my pleasure. That is Ian Lee, of course, with the Spot School of Business. So consider yourself warned because it's not going to stay low forever. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about vaccine mandates and the cost to one Kingston business that said we will not stop people from coming in. And well, they may go out of business for it. We'll talk about that in just a second. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point, And this is Club News Radio. All right, great to have you here on this Friday. So vaccine mandates are a thing, and um, there are several businesses across this country that have said, look, we're not going to be checking. Some have gone as far as advertising that they won't ask their customers for proof of vaccine, which is what Jack's Sports Bar in Kingston did. And, of course, it caught the attention of bylaw officers who then showed up, and they didn't just issue a fine. Oh, no, no, no. They suspended the bar's liquor license, and now they're trying to permanently take that license away citing public safety as the issue. Now, we knew fines would be handed out, but destroying businesses? I mean, is that what we're doing? Or did the owner do it to themselves? Ryan O'Connor, partner over at Zayuna Law Firm, who has dealt with an awful lot of these cases, joining us now. Good to have you. Good to be with you again, Alex. So this one is uh, the first publicly reported liquor license suspension in Ontario since this thing became um, a thing. I thought it was about educating in the first couple of weeks, but they seem to be going kind of like hard as nails on this particular business. Well, it seems to be a situation where um, EGCO, which is the uh, Liquor Regulatory Authority, and the local authorities in Kingston seem to have wanted to uh, set an example for those businesses that are unfortunately subjected to uh, mandatory vaccine passport policies. So it seems like this was an example. And the ADCO, the regulatory agency, has actually confirmed that this is the first and only instance of an actual suspension uh, or revocation of a liquor license so far. I mean, the policy's been only been in place for about a week and a half now. So uh, who knows what we'll, uh, what we'll see in the future. But it seems like uh, the authorities are attempting to make an example of this small business. Yeah, I mean, look, the bar can appeal this, but do you know what goes into that process? And given we're dealing with kind of um, territory that we have not dealt with in this, this country, uh, what would be the chances that, uh, you know, this guy would get a warning or the owner of the bar would get a warning and, and kind of get a, get his license back? Well, it's, it's always a difficult situation when, you know, you have a situation where a small business relies on, on the liquor license as the very means by which to generate presumably most of their uh, revenue at this point, they'll now have to proceed to an appeal before the license appeal tribunal, which is the, the uh, body that hears uh, uh, disputes arising from uh, alleged liquor license violations. We'll have to retain counsel, and uh, lucky for the bar um, that's subject to this uh, order, uh, they can get a fairly quick hearing before the tribunal to determine whether or not uh, the uh, the suspension or the potential revocation will be upheld. But unfortunately, this is a small business that's been presumably for most of the pandemic closed, uh, at least to uh, in-person uh, in-person dining and in-person drinking. So 
they presumably lost a lot of revenue, and now they're going sure. to be put to the significant expense of having to uh, having to retain counsel to appeal this. Well, there will be a lot of people who say, well, why then broadcast it? I mean, you made the point, and so you invited the trouble to your bar. Well, that's fair. And I mean, you know, perhaps they broadcasted it because they, they objected to the policy from a philosophical perspective. Bear in mind that mm-hmm. the vac- mandatory vaccine passport policy doesn't apply to, uh, you know, the, the crowded Saturday morning at Costco. Uh, it doesn't apply to the crowded mall on a Sunday afternoon. It only applies yeah. to those businesses that have been most that have been hit most hard in terms of uh, in terms of the revenue, in terms of their ability to, to be open. So, you know, mm-hmm. simply you know, present an objection to a government policy that, that they disagree with, I don't think should be a cause for them to be uh, to be unfairly targeted if that was the case. Yeah, I w- went to Costco um, uh, last weekend and I just walked in and I thought, why aren't they asking? And of course, they're considered a grocery store. But there's also things in this uh, mandate that don't make sense because nail salons and gyms are also exempt from this. And they were the two businesses other than restaurants that were shut down the longest and kind of targeted as being the big culprits. And you would think, okay, well, why wouldn't they be included? Not that I want businesses included in mandates, but, you know, it's like they're not included in this, yet they were apparently problem areas before. doesn't make sense. A lot of the the pandemic policy response really doesn't make sense, Alex. Unfortunately for gyms, they are included in the in the vaccine. Oh, they are. Okay, but but that, but nail salon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and hair salons, for example, and uh, and barber shops are are not included. So, I mean, the government uh, and public health officials have really taken a very arbitrary approach. Uh, fewer than one percent of uh, cases. Uh, of uh, outbreak-related instances of, of the virus that causes COVID are actually associated with uh, gyms, yet they're subject to the policy. So even the government's own data, public health's own data, demonstrates that gyms aren't the problem, and yet they're being unfairly targeted with this policy. So what is the word to the wise? I mean, there are a lot of businesses, I'm sure, that just are quietly not going to ask customers and just kind of go about their business. There will be others that make a big splash of it to to kind of put the message out there. And so what is your word of advice? Well, my word of advice is that you always have to comply with the with the laws that exist at the time. But there are, you know, this is really a, a court of public opinion exercise as opposed to a court of law exercise in terms of challenging these vaccine passport mandates. The more the person speak up about their inherent unfairness, that they don't apply to Costco and Walmart, yet they apply to your local, your local pub, your local restaurant, your local small business that's been struggling throughout the pandemic. The more people mm-hmm. speak up about that, the more people criticize the inherent uh, contradictions in, in all of our uh, pandemic uh, restriction policies. Uh, perhaps the, the quicker we'll get to a point where um, we'll restore some sense to our policymaking and, uh, and make make mandates like this optional as opposed to a requirement. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to um, you know uh, go uh, penalize uh, businesses, but but to go out and absolutely obliterate them to me is not a good look. It's uh, you know in this case, it's uh, you know I, I appreciate the the authorities in Kingston were attempting to set an example, but you know this individual who owns this uh, owns this establishment been struggling for the last 19 months and to go and make an example like that because you perhaps uh, you know didn't like his philosophical perspective on vaccine mandates and uh, and passport mandates it's uh, it's upsetting to say the least you know my heart goes out to these small businesses have been unfairly yeah. targeted gyms restaurants salons barbershops throughout the whole pandemic but the burden of enforcing pandemic restrictions always seems to be on their shoulders not on the shoulders of others
No kidding. All right, stay tuned. Ryan, always appreciate your uh, advice and um, insight on this. Thank you. Always good to be with you, Alex. Thanks. That is Ryan O'Connor. He is with Zayuna Law Firm. He's a partner there, and he's been taking on a lot of these cases. So if you need his help, give him a call. Next up, Mercedes Stevenson. And, well, she's got some thoughts about Mr. Trudeau's itinerary because it's raised more questions about other itineraries. So we'll talk about that. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio. Welcome back to what has been a very busy, busy week and a busy Friday, because we're still talking about something that, well, we shouldn't be talking about what we're talking about. We're supposed to be talking about the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, except for it's been totally hijacked and overshadowed by the Prime Minister, skipping the day to go on a holiday with his family. And again, not about the holiday. It's the fact that his office lied about where he was, and when it was found out where he was, let's just say the optics do not look good. Mercedes Stevenson is not just the host of the West Block, but she is our Ottawa Bureau Chief. Um, what were your thoughts, Mercedes, uh, when you found this out, uh, <laughs> that the, the facts just didn't seem to add up? And then, he, of course, he was spotted by Global News confirming that, indeed, he was on the beach, despite what the Prime Minister's office said. Yeah, so, I mean, we we can track the plane uh, because we know the call mm-hmm. number, and there's, there's a specific call number that's only used when the Prime Minister is on board the plane. Um, and when we noticed it flying across the country, I actually assumed he was going to Kamloops. Like, that's what I thought he was likely doing. So we were a little confused when we saw the plane land in Ticino. Um, and then I had a security source suggest to me that we should look into whether the prime minister was on vacation there. And we asked the prime minister's office, and they came back and said, well, he's there spending time with his family. And they initially tried to deny to me that it was a vacation. But I said, well, what is time away with your family if it's not a vacation. Um, They said, well, look, he took calls uh, from eight different survivors. He spent over two hours on the phone. Um, He was talking to people. He was thinking about it. It was just kind of, well, he was on the way. Um, Just the astounding tone deafness of taking a vacation on a day that was not supposed to be about a vacation. I mean, when they set this aside, one of the concerns that survivors had raised is like, look, this mm-hmm. is not Canada Day. It's not a day for celebration and to have a barbecue right. with your friends. So it's a day to think about what happened to thousands of Indigenous children who were taken forcibly from their parents and put into horrifically abusive schools, many of them never mm-hmm. returning home, and their parents never getting an answer on what happened to them. It's not supposed to be a day that you go away with your family. And yes, it's been a tough election campaign. Um, and I can tell you as someone who covered it, worked over 50 days mm-hmm. straight, uh, mm-hmm. 36 days over the campaign, it's long. Everyone wants time with their family. But this was not the day to make that choice. And that's what we're hearing from Indigenous leaders. That's not my perspective as the Bureau Chief. Uh, that's what Native Women's Association is saying. Uh, we have the National Chief uh, for the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald, on the show this week. She is not happy with the Prime Minister at all. Uh, and people are just saying, look, you received two invitations to come Mm -hmm. to the First Nation uh, in Kamloops, where these graves were discovered. You basically were, you know, a stone's throw away. You could have easily stopped the challenger there, and you didn't. 
Um, and so I think that this is very damaging for the prime minister. It's very damaging to create a national day to reflect and be somber and then go on vacation with your family. Yeah, not 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 just that. All the other leaders went out. They were all seen. Premiers, mayors, they all did what they were supposed to do on this Day of Atonement, which I think on the first one, you want to set the tone so that people understand this is like Remembrance Day. It is not a day to go to the mall or to go surfing or like the prime minister did. You know, he went to the beach. He had a beer on a patio, uh, you know, staying at an $18 million mansion while you've got, what, 43% of Indigenous children without clean water or uh, homes that um, are fit for even an animal. Um, he flew right over this thing. And you wonder why the Prime Minister's office wouldn't say, look, stop at Kamloops. It's right on your way. Go to one of the ceremonies. Uh, you know, he flew out in the middle of the night to greet the Michaels when they came home. Why wouldn't he on the day that he mandated, take an hour out of his day to go to a ceremony. He doesn't have to speak. He doesn't have to do anything. But this is the burial site that kicked off what this day was about. I, I think that's the question um, that's going to continue to be put out there until he in some way answers it beyond what they've initially said, which was that he spent time on the phone um, with survivors. Okay, well, spending time on the phone with survivors while you're on a Challenger jet on your way to vacation mm -hmm. in Tofino, not good optics. Um, and yes, you know, in fairness, this is a government that has done more than any previous government had for Indigenous Canadians, but that's still not a very high bar. Um, and I think that there's going to be a lot of questions. There's certainly a lot of anger from a number of Indigenous leaders who we've spoken to, even at the um, chief of the, the First Nation where Trudeau is staying, said, we have no idea he was here. If we did, we would have invited him to come to our ceremony. Um, and yes, you don't want to make it about you, but there's a way to attend a ceremony in a way that doesn't make it about you. Um, so I think that it's, you know, and there's the whole separate issue with the fact that the itinerary had wrong information. It said he was in Ottawa in private meetings. He wasn't yeah. in Ottawa in private meetings. The flight left at 8 a.m. Um, and that now is also raising questions about, like, are the other itineraries that we have accurate? And I can right. tell you that I'm looking into them, and there's some we've already identified that said he was in Ottawa on days when he was not in Ottawa. Um, so this has just sort of opened up a whole can of worms for them that I doubt they thought they would be dealing with at the beginning yeah. of a brand new yeah, and not to mention, they're literally saying, it's not, there is no truth that he went to the beach. And it's like, I'm like, but I'm watching global news. He's at the beach. So I don't yeah, know if they they've told, lost they control. Press that he was, he was not, he was not on a beach. And then literally, we found him on the beach. So yeah. uh, like, is, is he not telling his office? Do they not know? Or are they not telling us the truth? Well, we can't get an, you know, an answer on that. I was told um, by somebody senior there today that it was an error uh, and a mistake that his itinerary was not updated and that any other ones we found were also errors and mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to be fair, you know, um, Prime Minister Harper never put out an itinerary telling us where he was. We had to kind of try to follow around and figure it out. This was something the Trudeau government did, but they're of no use if they're not actually accurate. Right. But, but on this day, uh, to me, it would be confounding that no one in his office would say, you know, you shouldn't really go to a service the night before. You really kind of have to be there, certainly at the first one, to show people because this is your this is your legacy piece in your mandate. And, and 
you know, people are saying, well, so what? He can reflect however he wants. But the ripple effect, and, and I'm also hearing comments from those in the indigenous, um, you know, community, uh, they say that it, it lacks sincerity. And so there could be long-term damage. I mean, you've got uh, women's groups in indigenous um circles speaking out, they're outraged about this. They're like, you, you flit off to Tofino, you, you don't have even time to, to spend on this day of atonement, you know, not reflect, but you just go off and fly away to a vacation. So there is long-term damage. Well, I, think it, I think a lot of it would have been avoidable had, had he actually stayed home and reflected, had he gone to Harrington Lake and, and reflected. It was the getting on the military yeah. jet um, with Challenger, which looked like a little private plane, and flying out and, and then trying to say, well, but I took time to talk to some survivors. Well, okay, but the survivors, um, and, and to be fair, like, I don't speak for survivors at all. And, and there are mixed opinions out there in the Indigenous community. But we've talked to a number of Indigenous leaders who are saying there are survivors in Kamloops who wanted him there. That the chief yeah. invited him twice. That they were very sincere about that. Um, and if he was going to be traveling and being in the neighborhood, it, it just makes it worse. If, he, if he'd stayed in Ottawa, I don't think these questions would have come up in the same way. People might have been like, should he have gone? Shouldn't he have gone? Uh, but the minute it, you were en route to take a vacation, all he mm -hmm. had to do was wait one day, and this would not have been an issue. Or a few hours at that, that you know, go to a service in the morning. Nonetheless, uh, I guess, and there's been no comment today on Friday, so we'll see where this takes us. Um, uh, you know, they seem to use the strategy of just kind of ignore it and wait, and it'll all go away, and that's worked for them. I'm not so sure this time, but we'll see. All right, so what else do you have coming up uh, on, on, on the program this weekend? We're also going to be speaking to the Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. He is in Milan. His job was to mm. round up the missing several billion dollars for this $100 billion <laughs> climate change promise uh, that's supposed to give money to developing countries. Because, of course, developing countries tend to have significant emissions, right? They don't have money for clean tech. You're talking about the cheapest, dirtiest fuels. So it's supposed to help mm. them. But they're, they were not meeting the amount. So we're going to find out. Um, he and Germany were, were the two uh, designated parties to go out and, you know, get parties to cough this up. Did they get the other countries to get this money? Um, and we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the climate goals uh, going into the, the climate summit that's going to be taking place in Glasgow, the announcement by the government that they are, are going to put in even more aggressive climate targets of 40% reductions by 2030. Can they meet that? How are they going to meet that? What does that mean for oil and gas, which they've said? Um, they're going mm. to cap how do you maintain the jobs and prosperity while also bringing down your emissions. Uh, and this government, you know, has, has done a lot on environment. But at the same time, emissions have gone up every year since 2015 uh, with them in government. So how are you going to meet it if you're still going up? I mean, you have to do more than just stop it. You have to actually start bringing it down. Uh, we're the only G7 country that hasn't managed to stop or bring down the emissions. So we're going to talk to him about that. Um, and then we are also speaking um, with the Saskatchewan Health Authority, their top doctor there. Uh, Saskatchewan had four times the national death rate of COVID deaths last week. So what are they looking at in Saskatchewan? They're bringing in this vaccine passport. Um, is that going to be enough? How do you slow it down? And this um, head of the health authority, chief medical officer for the health authority who we're having on, is actually also an active ICU doctor. So not only is she doing her job on the health system side, she literally is going into the ICUs tonight to look after patients. Right. Uh, so oh, we're going to be speaking geez. to her about what's, what's happening there. Yeah, it is so, so tough, certainly uh, to our friends in the West on this. 
Very busy show. I do hope you get some kind of weekend this weekend, because every time you say you're going to get a weekend, then there's breaking news, and you don't get a weekend, so I won't jinx you this time. All right. Mercedes, thank you. All right. Cheers. That is uh, Mercedes Stevenson, host of The West Block. And, of course, you can watch The West Block uh, on our television properties Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, and you can listen to it on our radio station here, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, Sunday at 7 p.m. Maybe they can give her assignment out in Tofino. That would be a great assignment. certainly has earned it. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. Thanks.